0: Players gather to cast
1: powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in history magic gathering. Stoneforge Mystic, Teferi, Time Ravel, Jace the Mind Sculptor, and many others. Battling head to head, brutal combat. They all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory.
0: The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashan Roll on YouTube, Thuribon University, and the Epic
2: Hello, and welcome to episode 54 of the Eternal Glory Podcast. The Days of Our Lives. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined as always by Bryant Cook and Brian Kobal. How are y'all doing tonight? Just delightful, Phil. Happy to be here. Big fan of days. So I can't wait to see what
0: this episode has to bring.
1: Yep, I'm a big fan of Bryant complaining about days, so I'm also looking forward to this episode. i also really enjoying your uh, sultry intro voice tonight. You really laid it on thick, and I appreciate it. Oh yeah. Got that old school New York City radio DJ thing going
2: on. This is the ASMR version of the Eternal Glory podcast. This one goes out to all the ladies. Or you know what? Fuck it. It goes out to everyone. Like happy to have you here listening whoever you are. Uh I am I I am getting ready to be tired. Uh work work starts for me tomorrow. Um <laughs> My sleep schedule is perhaps not the most normal and healthy right now, so the next week is going to be the the harsh slip back into normalcy, and I'll no longer be a full-time content creator.
1: Amen to that. I am in the same boat. I have another week. I go back next Tuesday. Uh, we record on Tuesday night, so I'll, I'll one week from today, I will be tired and miserable and no longer a full-time content creator also.
0: Where did the summer go?
2: i have been spoiled like some parts of the summer obviously sucked but like for the most part like i I got to live the dream of just like being a full-time youtuber for a couple of months and that was that was really neat it was it was fun the flexibility was great watching the youtube numbers shoot up is like this crazy hit of dopamine that now i'm going to have to like wait a while to match at the same degree
1: yeah it was definitely it gives me a lot of power and comfort going into my school year because my school is in a bad spot like I don't know if I've mentioned this on the cast in previous episodes but of the six people on my team four of them resigned over the summer and none of their positions have even been posted to start interviewing and the school the school year starts in a week and we're the team in charge of training and safety so nobody's going to be trained And nobody's going to be safe because it's going to be like on me and one other dude to do the job of six people. And not even posted, no interviews scheduled, just, you know, fuck it. So it is nice knowing that I have a full-time YouTube content creation job that could keep the lights on if it has to. If I got a bail real quick, I have that in the back pocket. And it's been really comforting to... Although, obviously, COVID-19 is terrible, and its effect on the world is terrible, but having a year and a half where I could really sink into YouTube, plus this past summer, on as the cherry on top to, like, really dig in as well, I mean, this, this could be a job, if it has to be.
2: That's the dream. I've been, you know, starting to entertain the idea, like, not immediately, but, like, at at what point does does this become Pivot Career, and I just, like dive in you know at what point does you know this outpace my pay for latin academy over the summer and and i stopped doing that you know there's a lot of things that a year ago three months ago even would have seemed ridiculous and now it's like uh ah, content creation is is real yep you look at uh Numata
1: the nummy who has just took like a gap year between like college and real life to stream every day and then realized oh shit this is a job And now he just does this full time. Caleb Durward used to travel to Star City events as a GP top eight or two on his record and then just quit going to events because why would he? He makes more money on Twitch. Michael Jacob did the same thing.
0: Yeah, Michael Jacob and Caleb were also very early adopters of the content creation stuff. So I feel like they're just leagues ahead of everyone else because they've had an extra five to six years before anyone else even considered it.
1: Yep, Cedric as well. Uh, Cedric was also one of those like magic grinders, just sort of floating through life, no real direction. Landed on content creation. Now he runs an apparel company, uh, edits Star City Games, incredible casting career, both for Pro Magic and the SCG circuit. Like, uh, it, this is a a real thing if you put your nose down and make it work.
0: Although I will say this, uh, the Pro Tour dream may not exist. But that's a different topic.
1: Well, guess what? This has nothing to do with the Pro Tour. (laughs) Yeah. Like, the Pro Magic dream is content creation these days. Get ready for it. Also, I prefer to remain hopeful. Even though Watsy over the last, like, two or three years hasn't really done anything to earn the benefit of the doubt, I will always hope that somebody in there is screaming loud enough that eventually good things will happen. Like, they're... They have an open application out for a, uh, like, premier pro league coordinator or pro events coordinator, whatever they're calling it. And I know applicants for that program include Randy Bueller, Cedric, like, big names who know how to run tournament series. And also people who are invested in the Magic Pro Dream and not just, like penny pushers behind the scenes who don't know much about magic or never had a pro dream of their own like I, I think that i'm gonna give them a chance let them roll out what the next thing is before we assume it's terrible
0: which is fair uh, my point was more 10 years ago probably even longer than that like 15 years ago growing up uh, like there's, a, you know, do I go to college Do I or do I try to pursue pro magic? A lot of people I know were like, you know, I'm just going to grind Star Cities. I'm g- going to skip college. Maybe I'll go in a couple of years. And they were selling you on this dream that you can play the game, see the world. And it wasn't really true, which led in a lot of people wondering if they like floundered their lives, depression, etc. Uh, it's not always just like pro tour top eights and big dreams was my point.
1: Yeah, there's a tremendous survivor bias for the people who did it, and I really appreciate I've been listening to the Resleep Wolves podcast, like every time it's out, I listen to it immediately, and Cedric and Patrick are both very upfront with their survivor bias on this crazy pro-grind lifestyle, landed both of them in good places, and they're at least upfront that most people didn't get where they are. And I remember when uh, Grindr, the book, not the app, was premiered. Uh, it, it's a book about Brad Nelson. I think it was written by Rich Hagon or Evan Irwin. One of those two. Uh, they, they wrote a book, uh, a biography about Brad Nelson and his like rise to pro status. And there was a, a an intro trailer to like sell the book. And it was an interview with Brad Nelson. And he's basically like, I was 20 years old. I had no job, no girlfriend, no friends, no prospects to get any of those things. And I asked myself, should I be playing this much magic? And the answer I kept coming to was yes. And I was like, oh, that's fucking toxic. Like, I'm glad it worked out for you, buddy. But like, don't tell kids this. (laughs) (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) So No. I've
2: I've got another book recommendation. Um, One of the cardboard live folks uh james is it shoe is that the pronunciation hsu shoe um he wrote a book called magic the addiction which kind of talks about his sort of spiral into competitive magic and where that sort of landed with him it's it was a really compelling read and if you were a, a grinder of uh of any nature it will uh it will strike true with you you'll uh you'll recognize a lot of the pain that's in there
1: i read a twitter thread that uh hit pretty close to home recently i'm pretty sure it was ryan Sachs, the limited writer for scg and he was talking i think he had tweeted that he's going to back off from magic a little bit for for a, a small break just to get his head right and people were like oh god you're quitting and he was like no you all need to listen to this and he described how in college he just Drafted with every free second of his time, and he realized he needed a change when he had committed to go to some dinner. I don't know if it was a girlfriend or just like someone he liked or just a friend or whatever, but he committed to something after class one day. And then he just went into a fugue state and woke up at the LGS like three drafts drafts deep later that night and just totally skipped the thing. He didn't remember walking to the LGS, didn't remember the first three drafts. He just like found himself in, like, deck build of the third draft of the night at 1 a.m. and was just like, holy shit, what just happened? And I have definitely, I I don't know about Fugue State, but I've definitely, like, tilt redrafted at, like, 1 a.m. Like, I should be in bed. I have class at 8, or I have to be at work, and it's just like, ugh, lost in the finals of the draft, fire back in. And I feel like a lot
2: of people have been there, and... How many times have you gotten home from a magic event on a Sunday night at ungodly hours of the morning and then wake up at 6 a.m. the next day and, like, stumble your way through work the next day. Oh, every time there's a tournament. Yeah.
0: For sure. That's why I always, like, we're way off topic now, but the old, like, <laughs> what Sunday t- what legacies topic? were so great. Uh, you're, like, when I, people, like, romanticize those Sunday legacy events at Star Cities because the coverage was so good. Playing in them was fucking miserable. Like, if you made top eight, there's zero chance that, like, let's say you made a deep run in Top 8. You would leave the venue at, like, eleven thirty, twelve 12 at night. And if you had any sort of drive, you weren't getting home until the wee hours in the morning. I won the one in D.C. in 2013. I literally pulled into Syracuse at 6.30 in the morning, showered, and went straight to work. Uh, like, those events sucked.
1: I had judged one of those once back in my judging days. It was the one in edison new jersey the one that alex hatfield won with high tide let me tell you about a tournament that's won by high tide in an untimed top eight and as head judge i don't get to leave i i like all of alex's games went to three and he just took his sweet time high tiding all of them and like turned out there was a snowstorm that night which is not magic or alex's fault but like i started driving home at like one in the morning turned out like There was a blizzard and I had to stop in Scranton, Pennsylvania and just grab a hotel for the night. I think I rolled in at like 3 a.m. with my car full of tired gamers and uh, who all had to stay, too, because I was the head judge of the tournament. And we were just like, we need a room for like three hours. And I think we got it for like half price or something, because like, obviously, they weren't filling the room that night without us. And we all just sort of like dropped, power napped and. Waited for the roads to get plowed and drove out in the morning. And had to call off work the next day. Like it, it's a thing.
2: I remember top aiding a classic in Baltimore, and it was like back when Shardless Bug was big. So I was playing like a Death and Taxes versus Shardless Bug match. That since it was untimed, lasted lasted eons. It was like an hour and a half long match, and like I, I lost, and then I got to like leave and do a four hour drive home like we had to get dinner first before we left. Uh that one was rough. Jersey was also bad. Jersey was was rough.
1: Should have won your match, at least make
0: it worth it. This conversation is like making me reminisce about like watching your friends succeed in top eight
1: sometimes and how I just haven't experienced that in over
0: a year and a half now. Uh
1: what's that like? Because among my friend circle, well, I have two people who I would consider very close friends who I travel with regularly to magic tournaments. One of them will, like, take it upon himself to scout the top tables for me if I'm making a deep run. He'll have my top eight match proxied up by the time I, I win my win in in. He's like, do you want to practice real quick? And he just, like, has the deck ready. That's one of my carmates. The other is like, would you fucking lose already so we can go get dinner? <laughs> and th- those are the two people I travel with.
0: <laughs> I-, I have a pretty good idea of who these people are.
1: Oh, yeah. If you know me and my circles, you know exactly who they both are.
2: Yeah, it it is surreal. Watch watching your friends make a deep run, though. Like when when Cyrus went on to crush that GP, like just checking in with him throughout the day is like he was getting closer and closer and closer to that. Like it was it was awesome.
0: I feel bad. Like I'm a pretty good friend with Jarvis. And I mean, Brian is, too, but no one was like happy for Jarvis. Like Jarvis was just casually top eighting his third legacy gp and everyone's like yeah whatever jarvis we've seen you top eight before uh but like jarvis yeah, was on a it's like okay run.
2: jarvis we know jarvis doesn't win the crowd the way that a lot of other legacy names do like jarvis jarvis has his position you know he's 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 cool He he's calculated he knows his stuff he, he tests well um but i wouldn't i wouldn't think he has a high charisma score if we're uh dnding it up He's not a showman Uh, since we're talking about Jarvis.
1: And I hope if he hears this, he finds humor in it because I'm not I'm not bullying him. I'm just you know, this is a thing about Jarvis. My friends and our group, we very much subscribe to the improv comedy rule of yes. And like any stupid thing that is said to riff off it, you go yes. And and you add to it. You never say no or that's stupid or that's not how that works like that. That's that's the first rule of improv. And Jarvis is a firm no but. Like, everyone else is yes anding. And he's like, that's not even how that works. Why would you say that? Stop doing that. That's not even funny. And it's just like, come on, man. (laughs) He's like, like, straight man is also a a comedy trope where it's just like the one guy in the middle of the, the improv group who just doesn't realize there are jokes happening. And he's like the straightest man to the point that he's backwards. And that's Jarvis. He he is the the anchor in your inc- improv squad. Well, love you, if, Jarvis. If
0: you've ever listened to the uh, Community podcast, they talk about how every episode the straight man changes, and every episode is written to have it rotated, so there's never the straight man for two episodes in a row. Uh, that's always interesting as well if you look at it from a television perspective.
1: That's clever. I didn't notice that watching Community.
0: <laughs> I guess we can move into life
1: updates. Yeah. Oh wait, let's uh... <laughs> you, mean, you mean start the podcast?
0: Oh I guess you two have done yours. Um, uh, we just went deep off the rails. So this is just gonna be a short thing. Before I watched Suicide Squad with the wife, we were both like, Well, have you seen any of the reviews? And I'm like, Yeah, either apparently it's like the greatest movie ever made or it's absolute dog shit, and that's how everyone feels about it. So we watched it and at the end we were just like, eh, not bad for a DC movie. But, like, you wouldn't read that anywhere on the internet. Everyone's opinions were just so hot or cold. Or maybe people that, like, feel the way that I did didn't, you know, share that information about the movie. But it was just fun. It was cute. It felt a little bit more like a Marvel movie. Like, there was a little bit more, you know, fun in it. But still, you know, that DC darkness. It's worth watching for free on HBO.
1: Yeah, I'll watch that eventually. I'm sure my girlfriend's not interested, so I just need a night alone. Uh, I had... I had a night alone the other night, and I've been making sure to catch up on classics. I I, I listen to the Rewatchables podcast a lot, where it's just movies worth rewatching. And I'm trying to catch up on the ones I haven't seen yet. And I watched Seven. Have you seen that? The David Fincher movie with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. And it was great because the movie's so old that people haven't talked about it. It's from 1995, and I never saw it and everything was new to me i didn't know what it was about i didn't know the twist at the end i didn't know who the killer was and like all of that was new to me and then i watched the movie then i listened to the podcast and they talked about how exciting it was to be in the theater and like oh god that's who the killer is and like oh and i was like yes i just felt all that yesterday but i used my uh, my free night my girlfriend doesn't do like horror or gore or anything like that i heard suicide squad's kind of gory is that true it's a little bit gory. Is it like slow, torturous, like pain gore or just like comic heads blowing up kind of gore? Comic gore. Okay. All right. Then it's probably fine. Did you intentionally leave
0: Kevin Spacey out of uh, the seven lineup?
1: Bruh, that's the twist. Now anyone's watching this is going to get wrecked like the whole. Th- so all right. Now that Bryant gave I didn't, it up.
0: I didn't like he's a part of the movie.
1: Uh, so he is a gigantic part of the movie so uh sorry everyone spoilers the killer spoiler in, of this of this 26 year old movie but we could also so just have
2: Phil edit this out and not do that
1: unnecessary unnecessary <laughs> this we're rolling now all right but so uh the killer at the end it's revealed is Kevin Spacey who went uncredited in the movie part of the twist like from design. Is that you don't know who the killer is and then your mind is blown because it's Kevin Spacey who had won a, an Oscar for the, unusual, or the Usual Suspects the year before. So he was like really famous and for him to go uncredited as a service to the movie, like at the end you're just like, oh god, it's Kevin Spacey and he's so creepy and he's crushing this role and I had no idea he was in this. Like that's part of the hype of the movie and part of why it holds up. But that said, Kevin Spacey, also apparently sexual predator, who we, we don't talk about anymore. But I didn't mention him because of the twist.
0: I didn't know that was a thing.
1: Yeah, that, that movie, he, he is uncredited in it. He wasn't on the poster. He wasn't billed in it. Like he, he took that L from the promotion to make the movie better.
0: I saw both Seven and Unusual Suspects without knowing anything about either movie just like casually watched them when I was bored in college and was just blown away by both.
1: I watched usual suspects a long time ago and have forgotten everything about it. And I, it's fresh enough that I'm going to watch it again before I listen to the rewatchals podcast about it and make sure that I'm really feeling it. So don't give away any spoilers on that one Well, for uh, me or the There audience. is a
0: community reference about that since we've already mes- uh, mentioned community.
1: All right. Uh, can let's let's do some mtg updates let's let's get this moving
2: all right but before we do that I uh, just want to you know go in order here uh shout out to our editor force of phil for doing great things please consider donating to the podcast to keep force of phil fed and make it so that we don't have to run ads about like i don't know sex toys or something like that because we're weird now but just like give brian those ad reads and who knows what's gonna happen
0: also, shout out to Phil if you listened all the way through our last rambly episode uh, featuring Tasha's heinous something. Phil made a super sweet rap at the end. Or no, it wasn't really. I guess Beastie Boys is a little bit of a rap, but there's a song at the end. Go check it out.
1: Yep, we joked about Phil writing a rap, and then he did it free of charge, tucked it in right at the end.
2: All right, now we can MTG update. I'll I'll start. Um, I bought a new gaming PC that got here just a couple of days ago. I now have 32 gigs of RAM, and I, I feel like I just have unlimited power, and things that were taking me hours to process before are now like t- taking less than 10 minutes, uh, due both to the specs of the computer, um, and the fact that I switched over to Adobe Premiere Pro uh, for editing, which was also a great choice.
1: When your files are rendering, do you jump around, scream singing, whoa, Black Betty, ram a Because I would.
2: No, I I usually like go pee or something because I just finished recording a league and I've been sitting in my chair for the last hour and a half.
1: <laughs> do you not scream sing Ramalam while you're peeing? Because I do every time, whether I'm exporting files or not.
0: With thirty two gigs, as
1: long as the flow is good.
0: God damn it! With thirty two gigs, do you find <laughs> that you're actually using all of it when you're exporting? So n- normally, when I'm like exporting a video or rendering a video, I can have Magic Online open sharing my screen on discord and i can still do both it's just magic online itself is a little bit laggy but that also might just be the program sucking but like discord everything else is fine just magic online is a little bit laggy have you found a difference between 32 gigs and whatever you were at because i have 24 and i'm wondering if i upgrade will i even see a difference
2: well i i made the jump from 8 to 32 so the the difference that i am seeing is is astounding night and day difference. I I I didn't realize how how badly I needed an upgrade until I got the upgrade. Um but I, I feel like your jump from twenty-four to thirty-two is probably not significant enough to upgrade with GPU prices like they are right now.
0: But yeah, uh so your next bullet, I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit. Premiere pro. I gave you some tips on like exporting. Have you found that it's made your life any easier? Like I, I think Brian also started in Premiere Pro.
2: Yes, uh, it, it is a significant quality of life upgrade for me. Uh, I have basically cut some steps out of what I'm doing. And uh, like between the computer and Adobe, like just making my life easier. I probably went from like three hours of passive time while just like waiting for things to render to 10 minutes. And 10 minutes is, is the high end. And that is going to save me so much time and hassle over the course of this school year. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say that difference is probably the difference between me being able to make videos four or five days a week and three.
1: Yeah, I, I've never had three hours of downtime. I render each round as I'm playing the next one, and then I just splice them all together at the end. So I have a slightly different process than Phil. But uh, Premiere Pro is... Okay. Like, honestly, the rendering time seems not that different from DaVinci, which I was using before. But the important thing is there's been sort of this chirp on my audio in my videos. It's like it shows up maybe once or twice per two hour video, but it's just this like split second loud chirping noise that some people have pointed out. Some people have complained about here and there. And I'm like, I don't know what it is. I'm sorry. I learned that the free version of DaVinci just does that. It's called like the DaVinci Screech. It's a known quantity. And I don't know if that's like a back end to get you to pay for their subs- their actual paid version. Or if it's just like, it seems like if it still exists, even though the whole internet knows about it, it has to be kind of on purpose at this point. So I paid for Premiere Pro to have a, a service that isn't gonna do that chirp anymore and that's my gift to the listeners I guess
2: inside baseball for content creators specifically the free version of DaVinci Resolve also does not use your GPU to help you process videos so when you switch to either a paid version of that or another program that does the the difference in processing speed is absolutely insane no Fair. that said like DaVinci Resolve is one of the, your best free options if you are uh, you know not a a larger content creator and you're just getting started like it is it is fine i used it for quite some time
0: so phil's next bullet is innistrad and i don't know what phil has to say about it but i guess i'll share that i didn't realize that there's two different innistrad sets so i made a video about um what's the card called choose consider think about i don't they're all the The, same the one
2: blue thing the cantrip
0: i think it's consider uh, so I made a video and I shared it and I immediately got two messages that are just like, you use the wrong Innistrad logo. What? It, like if so, fun fact, there's a site that you can download, uh, like brand materials from magic from. So like every set release, they put the logos up like, uh, card arts, stuff like that. Uh, it's through like the WPN network. And I just downloaded the latest Innistrad one, and sure enough, I guess there's two different Innistrad sets, and I was just like, how am I supposed to know this?
1: Yeah, I had heard that, but I assumed that, like, one of them was, like, a Commander Supplemental set, but apparently it's, like, the normal three-month set release, but it is two sets released about a month apart or something stupid? Like, what is actually happening do you know? I couldn't tell you. I still don't know.
2: It's complete madness. I don't know what's happening anymore. This all plays wonderfully into the point I was going to make. So Innistrad is-, is one of my favorite planes. I'm-, I'm not like a big lore person, but Innistrad is-, is really near and dear to my heart because like a lot of cards that were really iconic to legacy when I was really getting into legacy were, were printed in, in Innistrad, you know, the, the the Thalia's, the, the Liliana's uh, Liliana of the veil, vale, things like that. The Delvers. Loved, loved, yeah, I, so I the Delvers. Yeah. I love the, I love the, like Gothic horror tropes that are, that are in that. I love, I love this plane and now spoiler season is starting again. And I feel nothing because there has just been this wave of product. like, I I don't feel the hype that I normally would feel from this plane just because like there has been so much product flung at me and I'm I'm sad about that. Like we could see yeah. like a a black Thalia in this set or something because like they're they're color shifting some some cards as they're getting corrupted or something like that and like that that's cool I love it thematically, but I feel nothing.
0: I'll say this: they better fucking not color shift Thalia. There's one Thalia is enough.
1: Don't do it. Yep, Black Thalia. Zombie Thalia. Once Thalia dies, she should stay dead. Nope, she'll be back. Just literally color shifted as a black card. They're also going to print Delver of Secrets as a black card. Same card, but it's a zombie too.
0: But you could still cast it off one blue mana, right?
1: Uh, yeah, it's hybrid blue-black.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> it's actually just colorless. One colorless. <laughs>
0: If you think about it, like, Delver, same thing with Snapcaster Mage, also from Innistrad. Both of those easily could have been red cards, but it's just like blue gets everything.
1: Well, Snapcaster Mage was an Invitational card that they just, uh, flashback was a theme in Innistrad anyway, so it fit to tuck it in there, but it didn't really need to be an Innistrad card at all. Uh, that was just something they had to make room for in the file, but that effect has become red since then. I mean, recoup.
2: And or the 2 yeah. 1 first strike pirate, yeah. The daredevil, yep. Direfleet daredevil. All right, Brian, how have things been going with you? What have you been up to in terms of magic?
0: I've finally broken my cold streak. Uh, so I keep a spreadsheet, I've mentioned this before, but like I keep a spreadsheet with all my results, and I've entered two over the last you know two weeks. I top 80, a modern 2k with uh, my modern Lurus Lotus Breach deck, and then I top 80, the vintage showcase with just straight blue white PO. No black, no tutors, nothing. Prismatic Ending is even that good in Vintage. Uh, Both those are up on YouTube. But, like, looking back, my last result was from March, which is just, like, you know, a long time of nothing for me. So the last few months haven't been great uh, magically for me, but finally breaking out of it. And it feels good to, like, go to a Paper 2K again and see people. Like, there's a few people that I didn't even want to see there, but it's just, like, being in the environment was really nice.
1: Yeah, I will say... Bumping into the people and remembering all the the different personalities in your local scene, where it's like, oh yeah, this guy. I don't really like this guy. I don't like playing him. I don't like being around him. I don't like his general attitude. Uh, or I really like this guy. I miss the shit out of this guy. Like we're not even Facebook friends, but like we sit and we talk and we hang out at every magic event we're at, and like, yeah, this guy rules. And also, uh, like a couple weeks ago, I ran into a guy who I thought hated me. Like, just there's just been a lot of, like, weird body language in the past, or, like, uh, like a grunt if I ask him a question rather than an answer. Just, like, the weird stuff that sort of sticks with you if you're paying attention. And he, like, lit up, smiled, and said hi, and, like, walked over right away when he saw me, like, two weeks ago. And I was like, oh, this is weird. Are we friends? <laughs> okay. Like, I've never had a problem with you. I just thought you hated me. But now we're friends, apparently. Like, nature is healing. So that, that has been fun to rediscover society.
0: The cheaters haven't gone away. Uh, at the 2K, there was somebody with mark cards. And I,
1: and awesome. Yeah,
0: I, I went to a judge. I was like, hey, this person's like obviously playing with mark cards. I noticed it from across the table. Um, I don't know. Like, <laughs> now that Paper Magic's returning, just keep a lookout for that stuff.
1: Scumbags. Never sleep. Does Cheney still live in your town? Does is he? Was it like him with a fake mustache on?
0: Uh, Cheney went to college in Binghamton, which was like an hour and a half south of where I live. Um, but then there's Eric, or not Eric, uh, Jared Betcher from Albany, who lives an hour and a half the other way. So uh, upstate New York, proud shuffle cheaters everywhere.
1: Yeah, two of Magic's all-time great cheaters, just right from your your area. Uh, nice.
0: What's the the dojo keyboard and cage fighter guy? He's like an hour north of Albany. You know what I'm talking about, I don't about, know
2: if right? I know this story. I- Trevor I don't know Humphreys.
0: About this. Boom.
2: Nope.
1: Okay. I don't know if you...
0: It was Star City Grinder.
1: All right, yeah, I, I don't really recognize that. I recognize the name a little bit, but I don't know any stories or anything about that person.
2: So, Brian, how did those locals go? Just kind of close close us out on this I segment. played
1: in my f- fourth live legacy tournament with Bant. I've played Bant in all four. I top-aided the first three, and this one I went three, one, and two. Two unintentional draws, one in a Bant mirror, and one against Yorian taxes. And I'm genuinely concerned about Bant's tournament viability in paper, if that's going to happen. Like, neither player played slow in our matchups. I mean, I think my Bant opponent was a little too deliberate starting on turn one. Like when you're in a Bant mirror and you know it, you have to like ponder a little quicker on every turn of the game. And uh, he just kind of didn't. But he wasn't playing slow. He was just playing normal rather than fast. And uh, my match against Yorian Taxes was actually against David Lance, very capable player. And we were playing so fast that we ended up having multiple judge calls and, like, stuff just going wrong. Like, we were just throwing cards around and, like, out-of-order sequencing and just shortcutting everything and still couldn't get our match done in time. Which was fine for him, because I got paired up in the last round. He just needed a draw to top eight and I needed a win. So, rah, 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 rah. That's not an accusation. It was a great match, and he played a lot faster than he needed to. But, yeah, it, it sucks that twice I couldn't close out a match just due to the time. And I've been talking with zach allen since then we're trying to figure out a way to speed bant up for a paper play and i think we found some cool ideas and i'm not ready to talk about them yet i think zach has a tournament this weekend and i don't want to blow up any of his tech but we found some cool things we're going to try
0: so while we're on the topic of draws playing paper magic again and getting to draw the last few rounds just feels wrong Like the modern 2k was seven rounds. I went 5-0 and then got to double draw in. And it just doesn't feel like that should be allowed. I understand that's like an aspect of playing paper. But if magic could somehow eliminate attentional draws without people just like sitting there pretending to play for an
1: hour, it'd be great.
2: Yeah, I mean, I am I am very against this. I like getting yeah easy
1: for you combo players to be like draws are horseshit. I can eat whenever I want. Uh, us death and taxes and band players are over here like emaciated by round five loopy because we haven't eaten all day we need those draws to eat but in all seriousness i agree with you that i th- i wish it wasn't part of magic but in magic has tried to eliminate it since the first year since like 1994 the first time tournaments happened they tried to outlaw them and like you said both players just you know take their time mulliganing to zero shuffling their deck presenting along the way then they both start with a zero card hand and they're just like lol draw a card your turn then like turn six someone finds the first land of the game they're like yay and then that just goes on for 50 minutes and it's a draw but they were playing the whole time and it's just you can avoid that whole circle jerk unfortunately uh but yeah i do prefer the magic online situation where like X2s can make top 8 sometimes because they don't just get drawn out starting in the second to last round. I I do like that. But what are you going to do?
2: All right. Why don't we go ahead and delve into the uh the real topic of today, um which you know, we we've, we've kind of titled this episode as being about days, but we're really going to start by delving into the showcase you challenge did there? results and there's a lot of yeah. There's a, there's a lot of Delver and a little bit of not-quite-Delver, and that's going to be the starting point for our discussions. So the, the first thing I want to do is talk about the mana base of the first-place blue-red Delver list. Uh, I'm going to read off the mana base, and I'm going to do it in sort of a dramatic order. All right. One Flooded Strand, two Misty, one Delta, four Tarn, four Volcanic Island, four Wasteland, two steam vents now usually when i see steam vents in a legacy match it's because it's round one of a tournament and someone is, is playing a budgetary land but this this is a showcase challenge winning deck list it has max out on volcanic islands and played steam vents in addition So what's going on? Like, why is this a good idea or a bad idea? Why did this pilot want to do this?
0: Well, the big idea is that you get to maximize your number of turn one red sources. So that means Rage Channeler, Ragavan, while having days available. Um, Just because there there would be hands where you'd open up Island and Ragavan, and you're like, well, this sucks. So this list just doesn't do that. That said, it's a little bit weaker to Wasteland and Bloodmoon. But if you look at the metagame, there are no Bloodmoons seeing play. In fact, Chalice is at an all-time low. So, you don't really have to worry about that. Obviously, Wasteland's a concern, but if you're running, you know, Ragavan and Dragon Rage Channeler, you get really good card quality and top of free mana. But I I will take, uh, I'd like to point out one thing about this mana base. I do think it's maybe built incorrectly. So, four Scalding turn doesn't make any sense, uh, because you could split those to be Flooded Strains and Polluted Deltas if you're not running a basic mountain. And I've heard the counter argument of, well, your opponents might think you have basics. I don't think that actually matters, especially when people are main decking Needle to get with their Urza Sagas. Just it's free to split those fetch
1: lands up. Yeah, they could be any blue one or any red one. Every fetchable land in the deck is an island and a mountain.
2: As someone who has played a lot of Sorcerer's Spyglass, like splitting your fetch lands is something that matters. Um, a lot of people don't do the, like, micro things, right? Because they say, like, oh, it doesn't matter. Like, the one that pisses me off the most is, like, when people who are playing, like, 16 basic lands don't split them with, like, snow and non-snow. Saying, like, it doesn't matter. I'm never going to get Predict, predicted. And then I just, like, look at my legacy Twitter of all these, like, people like Max Dorshan who are shoving, like, Predict into every possible deck they can. And it's, like, no, this stuff comes up. Like, this this stuff matters.
0: I didn't realize that they were also all mountains, so I really like the idea of just running like eight different one of fetch lands. Because, like, there's definitely times where I've gotten paired against Arid Mesa. I'm like, obviously, this is Miracles, then you don't respect Days. So, like, that's free. Yeah,
1: you don't play around Days or Stifle out of an Arid Mesa deck, but you kind of respect both out of any blue fetch land. And, and like, Bloodstained Mire, like, <laughs> that's Reanimator, that's Grixis, that's Doomsday, that's Storm. There are no other things that play Bloodstained Mire, but surprise, I'm Delver.
0: Yeah, it seems pretty free to do that. I'd love to split those fetches up.
2: So, like, we are we are a pro basic land podcast. General, generally speaking, you know, if you can put the basics in there, like, there's usually great value in doing so. But I I really like this this deck building. You know, if if you want to fetch a mountain on turn one for some reason, like, say, to play a Ragavan or a Dragon Rage Channeler, like, that means that you're not getting two days, and that's a huge opportunity cost. Um, Murktide Regent requires blue-blue. Mountain doesn't contribute to that. And when you start getting into some of these weird, like, island and mountain plus a pair of wasteland draws, and your mana doesn't do what you want it to do, you can sometimes just lose the game to a minor fumble with your mana. I
1: get a lot of donation decks that they're like a three-color legacy deck that's kind of aggressive, might have days, has like a swamp, a forest, and an island in it, all basic. And it's like, you don't get to do that. (laughs) Like uh, You can't play days in a deck with like basic swamp, basic forest, and three wastelands. Like that's, it's not going to work. Uh, if you fetch to like play your Tarmogoyf with Mono Basics, then you're not getting Abrupt Decay or you're not getting Ponder on Curve. And it, it's just like, at some point you have to just lean in. And this deck has leaned all the way in, and I respect the hell out of it. So one
0: thing I'd like to point out, is like a month ago, I recorded a donate or not a donation deck. I recorded a video with Max Carini, who is Wonder Pro, plays a lot of Doomsday and Max was a very early adopter of playing one of Watery Grave, and that deck is a 5th Underground Sea because of how bad the basic swamp was in your day's deck. That's the same sort of philosophy that these Delver decks are now picking up, and I'm not shocked, I mean pun intended, to see more shock lands in Legacy, and you'll notice that in the 8th place Doomsday list, there is a Watery Grave, so maybe this could be a trend moving forward. I know that like, Traditionally, in Legacy, you see shocklands, and you think, "Oh, there are a field of the dead deck." But maybe just maximizing dual lands is going to become a future norm.
2: I think Legacy heuristics are changing. Um, let me—I rest- think Legacy deck building heuristics are changing. So, like, unholy heat is starting to become a card that is like at the top of your consideration when you are playing a deck like blue-red Delver. Whereas for years, it was just like, okay, four four lightning bolts, one or two chain lightnings on top. Or if the meta is right, like, it's a forked bolt. And now because of the presence of things like Dragon Rage Channeler and sometimes things like Mishra's Bobble as well, uh, Unholy Heat becomes just this amazing removal spell. And the Delver decks aren't all starting with four Delvers anymore either, which would have been blasphemy a year ago.
0: Well... I'd like to make note of something. So you're talking about how the heuristics of deck building are are changing. And I'm going to go off on a tangent. I know that Brian's going to roll his eyes, but when people talk about the <laughs> ban days discussion, people go, "Well, why should we ban a card that's 20 years old?" Deck building has dramatically changed over the last 20 years and like the way that decks are built now is that everything is so snowbally, which just like didn't exist even three years ago. And I just love that you pointed out the deck building philosophy change in the recent years. And it's definitely true, especially with like the age that we're in, where like deck lists get posted, you know, three times a week for each format or whatever. Um, the information that we have is just so up to date, and everything has become so much more finely tuned at a faster rate.
1: I I made a post. It was just, like, you know, a clickbait video title uh, for... It was uh, a blue-white Show & Tell deck uh, with Monastery Mentor. And, like, my tagline was, like, are you ready to fight Show & Tell or are you ready to fight Mentor? They take completely different answers. And Matt Sperling just replied with a picture of days. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay. Uh, There's one answer that gets them both, I guess. (laughs) So, I mean there is a reasonable counter argument that whatever like crazy busted three drop planeswalker comes out next you can daze it and that keeps some check on just legacy snowball legacy and i mean you know me like i won't miss days i've been pretty open on twitter that i think days being banned would be fine um i don't know if we want to do the the days versus ragavan conversation now or if
2: anything's needed and why don't we uh we table that and come back to it because i i think there's more interesting things in this deck list than days all right
1: stay tuned we're going to talk about days versus ragavan versus nothing in a a brief ban list discussion okay
2: so the thing that i the other thing I, i thought was really interesting about this first place delver deck list is that there are three court of cunning's in the sideboard which is a card that, like I know, Brian just desperately tried to find a home for and was just kind of unsuccessful at doing it, despite putting in the in the work. What do you What do you think of this here, Brian?
1: Uh, well, let me tell you. This past weekend, the first loss I took in my legacy tournament was my opponent who had turn one Ragavan that connected, took my Carpet of Flowers, and then cast Court of Cunning.
2: Oh, baby! Off of
1: Carpet of Flowers, oh. and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" I hate my life. I'm quitting magic. I wasn't quite like that, but I uh, I'd lost a three-game set against Blue Red Delver, easily won game one, and then Court of Cunning buried me in the, the two post-board games. And uh, it was good. It was real good. Like, you're not playing from behind. You have creatures. If your monarchy is somehow challenged, you're going to get it back pretty quickly. You have haste creatures. You have flyers. You have shitloads of removal. And this is a really scary place to put a Court of Cunning.
0: Well, I think if you look at it, the the top control deck at the moment, this is the first time it hasn't run red in a long time. So the quarter coming usually doesn't have to worry about Pyroblast because you're not boarding it in for the Delvermere. So if you just stick it against Bant, they have to the prismatic ending it, which takes three mana.
1: That also just doesn't matter. Like, uh, if that doesn't remove the Monarchy, mm-hmm. which is the problem. Like you can remove the enchantment and then they're not milling you for 10, but they can mill you for 10. You have three arrows, three endurances, like, thanks, go nuts. Like, uh, I'll just uh, start throwing arrows in and catch up with your thing. Uh, My opponent in that match I just mentioned actually just like aggro blasted me for 10 point mill chunks. And then I started casting arrows using my endurances to loop. And then in game three, he'd never used it once. He just drew cards. I was like, yeah, that's probably the right way to do that. So answering the permanent just doesn't even matter.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah. um, Side note for those of you who don't watch all of my content. I I played mill recently, and there are a few things in crushing, as crushing in magic, as like milling your opponent out completely, and then one of the final cards in their hand is an endurance, and they get to shuffle it all back in. (laughs) That was one of the few moments in magic where I just felt like, totally and utterly defeated just like fork in me i'm done i want to quit this league
0: so i have two quick points about court of cunning if i can drop them really fast so the first is that usually you see a lot like one court of cunning in most lists i think three in this list is fairly spicy but there's also another application that we didn't discuss which is doomsday You can actually board in Court of Cunning against Doomsday if you don't want, like, Lightning Bolt in your deck. That said, I think Lightning Bolt's actually pretty good against Doomsday. But Court of Cunning shuts off their ability to pass the turn with Doomsday. Like, you have to win on the same turn. And if you're a Pyroblast deck, it becomes a lot more difficult because they have to cast either Ideas Unbound or Brainstorm to get into that pile. So you're putting a lot of pressure on them and they can't use their personal tutors because the van exiles the top card too. So you're just like shutting them down from ever doing anything in separate turns. So you get to bottleneck them on mana, which makes days more alive as well.
1: Yeah. Court's real good. I was going to add to the endurance uh, versus mill conversation uh, in consuming a lot of Patrick Sullivan content lately. I get he provides this awesome game design perspective. And a phrase that it uses a lot that I really love is up to no good, which if Endurance one card KOs your deck, you're up to no good and you deserve it. Uh, If Plague Engineer wipes out your whole deck, you're up to no good. You deserve it. Like, I just really like, like, coming from the player perspective, uh, especially since like 2019 when Modern Horizons came out, we got Plague Engineer and Elves players and Goblins players and Death and Taxes players are all like, what the hell is this shit? Like, how am I supposed to play my deck? And the game design perspective is, well, you're up to no good. If your deck is full of X ones that are all the same creature type and you don't have any creature removal, you're up to no good. And it's just a backstop for the format. And I've really taken a shining to those type of cards. Like, I've loved those type of cards as a control player without knowing what they were put in the file specifically to do like obviously i can read endurance and see what it's there to do but the conscious effort to stop people who are up to no good including mill like that i really like cards like that and i like that it's done with a lot of intentionality and just thinking of it in those terms completely switched my perspective on yeah plague engineer is a little too pushed it should have been symmetrical maybe it didn't need death touch like there's a lot of things I've said about Plague Engineer over the years, but like, no, you're up to no good. Put your goblins in the graveyard. I don't feel bad for you. Put some removal spells in All right. we
2: Alright, we, we need to move past this point, or like, this is going to become the whole episode. <laughs> All right, I've wrapped it up. Okay, cool.
1: Brian's um, up to no good.
2: Do we have anything else we want to say?
1: I'm not. I'm up to only good.
2: All right. All right. Are, All
0: right. are we Did ready? Did we call out though. that there's only two Delvers in this deck list?
2: Yes.
1: Okay.
0: Just want right. to make sure we didn't miss that.
2: So, that that's actually a good thing to bring up now, because when we look at the 5th place Delver decklist, it does not actually have Delver. So, the creature base for it is 4 Ragavan, 3 Merc Tide, 4 Dragon Rage Channeler, and 1 Brazen Borrower. And then most of the rest of the stuff is just the normal Delvery stuff, 2 Unholy Heat, 1 Pyroblast, and 2 Bobbles in the Flex slots. And there's been a lot of theory talk hypothetical discussions and starting to play test like is is delver actually good in in delver and the answer is like maybe you don't need it because like uh, there was not just this list that went delver list it was multiple lists in the top 32 of this challenge uh which is super interesting
1: this is something that has come up in other formats um this deck here, this is a modern deck with better counter magic and slightly better mana base. This is the way the deck is built in modern. You just always throw cards in the graveyard. You're always moving towards Murktide Regent, Dragon Rage Channeler. You start getting card selection as early as turn one off Mishra's Bobble with it. And Delver just doesn't fit that plan. And if you look back into Popper, like Blue Red Delver, probably like five six years ago was just the default best deck in popper and then i started playing the format and i picked up that deck because it's totally my shit and it was good and i played it and just realized delver's the worst card in that deck and i cut it for more resilient threats more better card selection and just is it delver became is it scred over the next six months like delver just left that deck it, it was there because people liked it, because there was some power level memory, and it just, it was the worst card in the deck by a lot. So we have at least two other non-rotating formats with precedence that Delver is just not worth the slot in Delver anymore.
0: Well, we've talked about it, and this is a reason not to run Delver, Mishra's Bobble. It doesn't flip your Delvers, but it's also really good with expressive iteration in Delve. So when we first saw this set, we said, hey, Mishra's Bobble is really good at, you know, Creating those Dragon Rage Channeler uh, surveils and why, like, it did have this friction. And the answer might just be don't play Delver. That way you can maximize your bobbles so you can make your expressive iterations better. Your Dragon Rage Channeler becomes a 3 3 a lot faster. It just makes a lot of sense.
2: So I think the next thing we're going to see with these decks is people messing with how big you want to be. So, like, now now that people are messing around with Delver, like, at what point do you start slotting in, say, predict? Because you can cast a spell, you can, like, cast a predict, and use Dragon Rage Channeler to always hit with it, right? So, like, do you need more than two expressive iterations? You know, predicts can be your next ones.
0: I don't think that's the way that you want to go bigger. So, if we look at the first place list, there's four Murktide. Coming into this weekend, two was stock. This 5th place list has 3. I think that's the way that you actually get bigger, because like Pyroblast is really the only card in the mirror that answers it. You can use Unholy Heat if they decide to make it a 6-6, but Regent is really how you win. I don't think the battle's actually won through card uh, card advantage, it's won through just like Brute Force, so I don't really think predicts
2: where you want to be. Yeah, I could totally buy that. I have had a lot of trouble answering Merc Regents playing Assorted Legacy decks, like every time I'm playing like some like bullshit rock deck and I have like abrupt decays and fatal pushes and then a Merc Tide hits play, I just go like, well, okay. Game two.
1: Yeah. It dodges a lot of the played black removal in the format. It dodges all, all of the played red removal short of Pyroblast. Uh, you need white cards and Prismatic Ending is now a premier white card removal spell that doesn't hit it either. It's extremely powerful. And talking about going bigger We've hit this note on the podcast multiple times before. The history lessons, the old uh, grow decks back in the early 2000s. The blue-green grow deck ended up getting obsoleted by the Bant grow deck that just went bigger. Uh, Treasure Cruise Delver got obsoleted by Treasure Cruise Jeskai Stoneblade. That just went a little bigger. And maybe there's a, a Stoneblade list. Maybe there's a Jeskai deck that uses a lot of these same tools and goes bigger like maybe you don't need to main deck pyroblast if you have swords to plowshares maybe there's a sidestep maybe true name nemesis is coming back Uh, this deck can't answer that it can only race it it can counter it on the stack or race it on board but if it's in play it's there so there's there's a lot of things that we've seen in history in legacies uh, evolving metagame over time just magics evolving metagame over time where add a color go a little bigger get better removal and the card that would punish that sort of bigger deck is delver which these decks are cutting so it, it's sort of in ebb
2: and flow among this you know one deck sort of metagame caldra's a hell of a drug just saying it's real hard to answer once it's in play yeah Cauldra is an absolute monster
0: it's also, like, part of this is a metagame call, so we'll see in this fifth place list that they have a Brazen Borrower, which is a card that, like, fell out of favor. People are allowed to tell me that I'm wrong with the time period, but it feels like it fell out of favor when Grixis Delver quit being the best deck, because then, we you know, we got Ren and Six and, you know, Dreadhorde Arcanist, and, like, it's just, like, been here and there, but it hasn't really been a constant Well, Green-White Depths has been everywhere recently, and it's an answer to Green-White Depths, which is just something that the other threats... Like, everything flies now, but none of it's a clean answer, and if your worst creature, you know, does everything that your other creatures already do, you might as well get the versatility out of it, right?
2: I think.
1: Yeah, Brazen Borrower fell off when Depths fell off. And And the the Chalice Depths as well. Right. Yeah, the the main deck answer to Chalice, the main deck answer to merit lage and black green depths just doesn't exist anymore and decks have either oro to pull over 20 life pretty easily and hitting twice with black green depths is a lot different than hitting once and the decks that don't have Uro have wasteland and uh prismatic ending is everywhere like there's endurance can chump for a turn untap ending like merit lage has i don't think ever been worse in legacy and you have to be the green-white shell at this point, because that has that, like, Maverick plan as well. Like, you gotta answer the Alvish Reclaimer, then you gotta answer the Knight, then you gotta answer the Merit Lage. And if you're too slow, you just get Merit Laged first. And that that's just a totally different incentive to have Brazen Borrower in your deck than it has historically. But, like we just said, this deck is not great at answering Merktide Regent outside of Pyroblast. And Brazen Borrower does put a big uh, wall up in front of Merktide.
2: Okay, so next we're going to jump to the eleventh place list, which is a Bant list, or I suppose technically it's a, a four color list. And this is not maybe the Bant list that you're going to be expecting. This is a Green Sun Zenith Yorian Bant deck list, not necessarily the the Bant deck list that has that has just been so popular um, in in local events and on Brian's channel and in leagues. Um, you know, there's there's 20 different creatures in this, everything from Masked Vandal to Omnoth Locus of Creation, Renegade Rallier, Scavenging Ooze, Tireless Provisioner. Um, there's there's just all sorts of uh, strange and unusual utility here. Um, I don't want to call this like the breakout deck of the event, because I don't think that's true, but um, this is the first time that I'm really seeing this deck uh, on, on the big stage.
0: How are you going to leave Omnath out like that?
1: I
2: thought I said Omnath. He said
1: it. He did. He just said it weird. Omnath. 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 For
0: what it's worth, Kiora Works has played this deck a bunch in the past, but you might have heard it referred to as like Bant Natural Order. It looks like they've actually dropped Natural Order in favor for the Years of Sagas.
1: Also calling this a Bant deck is, I mean, Phil said it's not quite a Bant deck, but there is both Leovold and Omnath. This is a five color deck. Like, it's not even like dipping into red for Pyroblast out of the sideboard like a lot of decks are doing. This is a five-color deck. It has Ignoble Hierarch to make black. And let's look at this mana base. Oh god, base. the more I look at we the got... mana
2: base, the more it hurts me. Oh no.
1: <laughs> yeah, so the mana base does not have a source of red in it. Or it has one bajuka bog for black. It has no sources of red. So you're on a uh, Zenith or bust for that thing? Are there, there's, there's bird. one Birds of Paradise, I lied. Okay. There's one Birds of Paradise to get red mana with, and one Ignoble Hierarch. There the Birds of Paradise, Ignoble Hierarch, and Bajuka Bog. Okay, alright. So there are some black and red sources, but this is also a Yorion deck. Did we mention yeah. that? There's also
2: <laughs> seven okay. colorless lands in this mana base because they have four Urza Saga and three wastelands. Yep. This, this mana base makes me feel things, and they're not happy things.
1: They're not good things. Oh, one noble hierarch, by the way. I, I assumed just looking at the list would be four noble hierarch, then one ignoble, one bird, but nope. One noble, one ignoble, one bird. We got the, the full smorgasbord of mana dinguses. Gotta keep them separated.
2: Of of note, there there is a full play set of carpet of flowers in the sideboard, which I presume is there there's gonna have to, to be. smooth out the mana base for the wasteland matchups
1: my god you're never beating wasteland in your life uh so i mean obviously uh kihara works they they did a this is clearly a labor of love there's a lot of thought into all these numbers you don't get to one noble hierarch one renegade rallier etc one omnath one leovold without putting the time in and 11th place is a strong finish in a field like this. But that said, this deck's a fucking mess. <laughs> like, I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, please nobody donate this to my channel.
2: Yeah, this that's that's exactly the sort of thing I, I was thinking. I, I played something with a similar mana base yesterday. And I, I, I said in the deck deck, I think the mana's really bad. And like, by mid-round one, I was already like, I'm going to try not to complain about the mana all video. And...
1: Yep, just take I, it I as fact. I did not
2: succeed. Uh,
1: yeah, th- this, this is something. And, I mean, power to them. This is clearly their thing. No shade.
2: I would not choose to play this deck, though. I just don't think that someone else could pick up this deck and do well.
1: Yeah, that that's a good way to say it. It's really cute
0: that your Renegade Rallyer can get back your Urza Saga that was sacrificed that turn. On
2: curve. Yeah, that's that's dope. Yeah, Um, I think there's a lot of times where a dedicated pilot of a deck can do really well with a deck that they have built and tuned. And one of my favorite examples of this is like Sam Black building that like Zombardment deck, taking it to an SCG event, and I I don't remember exactly what he did. I don't know if he won or he top aided with it.
1: That was a Grand Prix, even better than an SCG. That was a Grand Prix. Yes, it was a Grand Prix, and uh, he had been writing about the deck. For a couple weeks on his Star City column. Just sort of like he would write whatever his actual column was. Then at the bottom be like, by the way, I've been noodling around with this in Legacy. I think it might be fun. And his friend and testing partner, also a a Platinum Pro at the time, Gaudenis Vidugiris, was like, hey, Sam, ship me your list for this GP. And he was like, no, I can't do that in good conscience. And then they both ended up top baiting. Gaudenis was on a different deck. He was just on like a normal Legacy deck. But Sam was like, yeah, I would have shipped it if I knew it was actually good really
2: cool to finish the point and then a bunch of other people tried to pick up that deck list and floundered with it because it was just one of those things where you know he as the primary pilot like knew exactly what he wanted to be doing how he was going to play matchups and, and approach things and a lot of that nuance was just lost by someone looking at the deck list for the first time for
1: sure Are we ready to talk about Urza's saga death and taxes
2: yeah um so this one's a little bit further down the line this one is in 26th place uh the mana base for this dnt death list is three karakas 11 planes four port four wasteland and two urza saga uh
1: in fourth place phil there is also a yorian urza saga death and taxes deck
0: why don't we talk about both of them uh so this one is a non-yorian build and then we can talk about the yorian build does that work
2: I mean, let's let's just generally talk about, like, theory here. Um, Ur- Urza Saga in Death and Taxes is sort of an interesting inclusion that, like, kinda fits. You have a very important artifact one-drop that is a part of your deck, Aether Vial. But it's not necessarily the sort of thing that is going to be good when you get it relatively late into the game and the individual bullets that you might put into your urza saga deck like retrofitter foundry are not necessarily like amazing in death and taxes because you have other mana sinks you have your equipment you have your shodden ports you have recruiter chains and things like that so while urza saga is like a slam dunk into so many legacy decks based on its raw power level in death and taxes it's a little weird because the Urza Saga does sacrifice itself, right? And that means you go down a mana source in your deck that has a bunch of late-game mana sinks. And there's there's some tension there. I like the exploration that is going on currently, but a lot of times I, I feel like I'm just left with questions. Like, how big are those constructs really going to be? You know, is activating this Urza Saga going to be better than deploying your, your Thalia or porting your opponent or playing Spirit of the Labyrinth? I, I did, like, a 20-minute video on this for my YouTube members, if, if you're interested in, like, really going deep into some of this.
1: Phil, I, I am looking at the fourth place Yorian Taxes list with three Urza Sagas in it, and I am, like, borderline twitching with anger and confusion about what this Urza Saga is doing in this deck. Like, at, on a quick scroll by, I see, like, eight artifacts. I assume there's going to be some artifacts to get with Urza Saga. There's not there's four no,
2: it's it's either yeah
1: it's four vials and then Batterskull, cauldra sophie and Jate. and there's one needle in the sideboard like i guess it makes a lot of sense because the yorian taxes deck does play forever like there are no short games and if there's a short game it's because you played uh stoneforge for cauldra and just got in like if any game that actually like has a normal pace of play to it you will, your saga will pop and there will be five more turns to get your vial up the chain to Yorion and uh, do stuff along the way. So maybe, like, maybe that makes more sense, but like, wow, is that a commitment to grinding, which, I mean, you're already doing if you're playing with like Yorian taxes and like, uh, and like, it's not lost on me that you can flicker wisp your, your saga, reset it. Like, that is cool. Uh, but like you need a violin play already to do that i don't know i am i am skeptical of this but there there are results right in front of me that i am gonna respect but wow not even i i guess after the initial wave of confusion wears off you have to give a lot of respect to the discipline of just like They could have put a soul guide lantern in here. They could have threw a retrofitter foundry in there. They just didn't. They're like, yeah, either vial's good enough.
2: Let's do it. I think if you're going to go this route, at least like some of your sideboard options should do this. So like in, in a lot of the builds that have Urza Saga, you see things like Pithing Needle and Graptiger's Cage and Tormod's Crypt in the sideboard to kind of like plug some holes and make it so that you have more virtual copies of these things um but for this one has the pithing needle but it doesn't have like say a graph digger's cage it has surgical and rest in peace and containment priest instead
0: so i was watching alex mckinley play uh magic last night and alex got paired versus someone that revealed Yorion played a basic planes and i couldn't tell you the name of the one mana artifact that they played but it was one mana p2 mana sacrifice at flicker a creature and i was just like that card is not legacy playable uh, no disrespect to whoever was playing this, but you could be playing you know cards like that um at some point, I think those aren't worth cyborg or aren't worth deck slots, even if you have eighty of them. so I think whatever you're playing in the main deck needs to be worth the slot like main deck needle, I think is good enough, but I don't know how many you would actually play
2: or even like you could at least do something like a shadow spear, for example. And then, like, rationalize, like, I'm going to win the long games. Hey, maybe I just need to get a little bit of life in the mid-game so that I can make it to the point where I can start hard hardcasting these, these solitudes against, like, all these, like, Uro and blue-red decks and things like that.
0: I mean, you also get to make your Thalia a little bit bigger, right? Like, Thalia becoming a 3-2, like, she wins wars with First Strike. Like, that does matter.
2: Shadow Spear is a card that, like, I feel is incredibly high ceiling incredibly low floor like when it's bad it is is just an artifact for your urza saga construct count and like that's it because you don't have the mana to actually equip it because you need to be doing other things and when it's good you just like gain nine life in a turn um that that card has been really swingy and high variance for me
0: so i'd like to go off on a side tangent right now um, so there's really two builds of Death and Taxes at the moment. We have like the build in fourth place that's playing Orion, and then we have the build that Phil originally wanted to talk about, the Coke MTG list in 26th place, which isn't playing Orion. And talking to some Doomsday experts, there's this like mental game with playing combo decks against uh these two Death and Taxes builds where the Yorian builds tend to play three copies of Deafening Silence and then one to two Mindbreak Traps on top of all of their Graveyard Hate. So their Surgicals, their Rest in Pieces, whatever. Um, but the more stocked builds don't usually play the Hate in those numbers. And they're like, there's this mental block for a lot of people where they go, well, they, it's an 80-card deck, what are the odds they have it? But it's actually the same because they play way more. So if you just jam into this 80 card deck, you think there's no way they have it. But then they do just because they play more. So like, don't just disrespect them because they play 80 cards. Not that I agree with playing 80 cards, but you can't just always jam because they're never going to have it. Like, that's just not how magic works, especially if they're playing more copies.
1: Yeah, like there's the basic math level to it, which I mean, you can just pull out your calculator and figure out the odds of them having a mind break trap in their opening seven. But then you have to measure the human element, the fact that you're playing against a human being who's making decisions, and what are the odds that they kept seven with no hate? <laughs> like, uh, Or what are the odds that they went to five and decided now is a fine time to keep a hand without any hate? Or do you think they found the hate card in five? Like, mulligans are a big part of magic. Like, I, I feel like just jamming because what are the odds is a really... Like I understand that you're in all of the, the most elite combo circles, but I feel like jamming because what are the odds is just loose AF.
0: Another thought that I had while uh, you were talking, Brian, about the Aether Vile stuff is one reason that I've heard not to play the Yorion builds is that Aether Vile is the best card in your deck and you have a tough time finding it. I don't know how good Vile is starting on turn three, but Vile more than ever is a somewhat of a liability just because of Prismatic Ending. I wonder how that changes the dynamic of the Death and Taxes matchup versus the Dex playing ending. Like, I imagine it's bank control versus D and if like you just never get to have your vials, how does that play out?
2: It makes some of your mulling decisions really hard as the Death and Taxes player too, just the existence of a prismatic ending. So like, if if you have like a one land, like say one basic planes, ether vial hand with a bunch of creatures, like under most of my mulligan heuristics that ends up being a keep or at least previously it did and now like when on turn one you can lose that ether vial a good portion of the time if you are playing against ban like are you still going to keep those and just say like man i hope they don't have it and just like lose the game effectively on the spot uh it's 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 tough
1: that was the whole argument to go into Yorion. i know that Yorion dnt isn't new but it's I think the lists have found a place where they're they're now good, and the the argument was, Vile is not that essential anymore. Vile is not that stable anymore, and if we're not that in on Vile, why not just play this sweet companion? And I I will say, um, I mentioned David Lance earlier in my MTG updates. He lives in my region he lives in ohio i live on the ohio pennsylvania border so we've been ending up at a lot of the same tournaments lately and we've played we've been paired in two or three of them we've played a bunch of times and in at least the band matchups the control matchups like that turn six vial is gonna get to five like it's it's gonna be good eventually and finding it in the mid game I've probably used my Prismatic ending on a Thalia or a Stoneforge Mystic by then, and then it just sets up the Yorian thing for later. You're playing the long game, which in the context of like Delver and Storm, etc., you don't get a long game, but at least in certain matchups, that vile doesn't need to show up on turn one. And I think, and Phil will know better than me, but I've played vile decks in the past where if the matchup's getting grindy, I just board it out or don't play all of them. Where it's like this is such a bad top deck that I'm not leaving it in. Like I don't know where yeah. that fits in current legacy, but that
2: is a thing. Stepping way back when like Grixis control was was super popular and Culligan's command was was everywhere. That was that was one of the few times where I was regularly boarding out Ether Vials because they were just unlikely to survive, and I just I just physically needed a body to try to keep up with the just swarm of removal spells that my opponents had.
1: Yeah, in the Invitational that I won in Modern with Dex and, Death and Dexes, so it's not quite the same, but I played against Grixis Shadow in the finals, and I boarded out, I think, two of my vials. Like, I give myself a chance to have it on one, but I don't want to draw it at any point after that. I, uh, I was, or I was actually, I might have gone to zero vials in, in the cyborg games. Like, I did not have all four in, and it might have been zero, because you just, it's such a bad con- top deck, and it's a guns Command deck, and... Just just play a spell instead.
0: So our next section is community thoughts. And the first thing is main deck Pyroblast. Is is that a bad side for the format? I think with our previous section, Pyroblast, you can even hit Yorion while extremely unlikely. It's never dead against that matchup. If you're just in game one on the blue red Delver side, you can theoretically hit a Yorion and then tell all of your friends about it. So, you know, living the dream is a possibility. Just throwing that out there.
1: Also. Uh, just noteworthy pyroblast can be one red surveil one later cast murktide regent like the the floor on pyroblast has never been higher uh, the cards in your deck just care about spells going on the stack or spells being in your graveyard even in non-blue matchups so that is a pretty low-cost addition to get a huge edge in the delver mirrors and control matchups the point uh honorog tweeted this by the way if you're not on twitter this is where this conversation comes from or or was it, it was honorog right not bob
2: yes yeah, okay
1: yeah honorog said if pyroblast is in main decks the format is unhealthy and that might be true uh it is certainly a sign that the people doing that believe the metagame is small enough that that's the right call and that's been a thing in vintage for quite some time where obviously the blue cards are just horrendously broken but in vintage you play these main deck pyroblasts to keep up in the blue mirrors but then shops and dredge and hogak and etc are all also pillars of the metagame so you end up with a dead card or a bad card like i i think even though like the floor of surveil one and exile it to murktide region is there i think that's a pretty you wouldn't play that card like one red mill one maybe like i i don't know you just wouldn't put that card in a delver deck uh but the upside is there and the i think death and taxes being a huge part of the metagame right now the yorian taxes i think that they're sort of preying on this inbred delver metagame uh what what do we think about the the pyroblast
2: historically i I have been a person who benefited a ton from all of these anti-blue like decisions. Like, every time that my opponent has like a a Veil of Summer, a Defense Grid, a Pyroblast in their main deck, I am usually going to be one of the people who benefits from those things. So like to me, this this just seems like a, a basic deck building decision, not a sign of like this is unhealthy. Like this is this is just metagame. This is just against hedging against what you expect to see the most. This is your spell, spell pierce versus chain lightning sort of thing. I don't see this as unlikely.
0: Delvers never had card selection like Dreadhorde, or I'm sorry, not Dreadhorde, uh, Dragon Rage Channeler. So they've never been able to just go, "Hey, that's dead in this matchup. Mill it before I draw it," which is also a part of what Brian was describing. But they get to selectively choose their draw steps more than ever when we first uh, described this card, we were talking four to six surveils a game in playing, at least the combo mirror or the combo matchup versus Delver, they get way more than six. So I understand that's only one matchup and maybe against the mirror or Bant, that dies a lot faster and they might only get four to six, but against me, it's often way more. So if you stack that card quality up and if you ever have two of them in play, you really get nice card quality. So it's just another added benefit. And, if you have that power, why not play some main deck K-makers like Power Blast?
1: Yeah, and even just on top of the the number of surveils, the the way that Surveil lines up with the game plan you're on anyway, just ponder, look at an extra one, or brainstorm, look at an extra one, put two back, cast the Mishra's Bobble you just drew off brainstorm, mill one of the cards you don't want. Like just the, the way that this slots together with the card selection that the deck already had is completely bonkers.
0: I think one of the interesting things about the Delver deck right now is that there's so many micro decisions. And
1: if you're a really
0: good magic player, you get to abuse that. And because that's like when peak, like when you had the Delver mirror in standard, all those micro decisions that really mattered, usually the best player won because it was getting closer and closer to chess. That's what we're doing right now in the Delver mirrors.
1: Yeah. I, haven't played a lot with the Legacy version of the deck, but I recorded a Modern League. And like I said before, it's basically the same deck. And I played a Mirror, and it felt like chess. It honestly felt like I went 2-1 and one in that matchup. And the game that I lost, I missequenced sequenced or I chose poorly on a Surveil or some stupid thing happened. And the advantage snowballed away from me. And I won the two games where I felt I played well. Uh, in my first Eternal Week on Top 8, I was playing Grixis Delver and my win in round. I was on the back foot against dead Gaelle and Randy Bueller was doing commentary and he was kind of busy telling stories about the olden days and like uh, Chris Pakula and dead L and stuff and not really paying attention to all the decisions I was making. But like I was on the back foot and every turn I had the perfect card. It was like, but I was pondering, brainstorming, shuffling in between and I ground, ground it out, turned it around. It was like, Oh, he has to draw lightning bolt to stay alive here, lightning bolt. And then, oh, he has to have exactly electricry to stabilize this one, electricry. And I was making tons of, like, behind the scenes, like, seeing the matrix, like, the zeros and ones scrolling through the air. Like, I, I was dialed in and feeling amazing. And when you're in that zone, in the Delver, in the Delver decks that can select that much, anything is possible. And this deck, like you said, is just selecting more and more often, and you get so many more decisions. And uh, the the Guldecots and the Jarvises out there, they're going to farm with this deck as long as they can.
2: 100%
1: agreed.
0: So the next question is, is Jeskai Ragsdale still, still Tier 1? What do you two think?
1: I think that Yorian Taxes is pushing it far away because that deck is really good against the Jeskai rag deck i think Jeskai guy rag is really good against bant but bant's meta share and position in the metagame is falling off the delver decks have gotten to a point where they're effective against bant and the rag still deck is hostile the yorian taxes deck is hostile and bant is just falling off so Jeskai guy rag's natural prey is is out of the ecosystem and now it suddenly found itself at the bottom of the food chain
0: I will I agree with what you're saying but I also think that there was a little bit of brewers advantage with the Jeskai Ragstill deck
2: Oh yeah for sure So my my thought on it was that like I think 2 weeks ago when we recorded we all kind of thought that the Jeskai Ragstill deck was still a little bit loose around the edges some of the numbers looked weird some of the things weren't still quite perfectly tuned and i think some of that stuff just kind of like finally caught up to it and i think some people like recognizing some of the awkwardness ended up moving on to other strategies and i i, I just heard a lot of people talking about like how many of their matches were go- either going to time or just like taking eons and eons and eons and and I, I think that has just dis- like the combination of those two things has discouraged some people from like choosing to put in the work to make that deck I better. Have,
0: I've run into a few lists that I think are actually pretty interesting. So these lists are taking the successful parts of the Ragstill deck and then combining them with Blue Red Dolver. So you get four express reviteration, you get the channelers, you get the Merc Tides, you know, the Ragavans, all that good stuff. But then you also get Prismatic Ending and Swords, which are really good in the mirror. You're still playing uh, Urza's Saga, but you're not running like the stifles or like these awkward standstills that are just awful on the draw. So it's cutting a lot of those cards that are just like not great all the time. And those cute like retrofitter foundry type cards and you're just playing the bangers. So I've run into that.
2: Man, you just fucking hate retrofitter foundry. Don't you? But
0: it's just playing bangers. Card's really good. Um,
2: so it is
0: that like i've like when i faced it it seemed really good because it seems like you have the best of both worlds i don't know if this will be a deck moving forward but at least it impressed me
2: i expect it to come back at some point in in the future but i i think it's like time in the sun where it was like very clearly one of the top three decks in legacy has passed
1: and the thing you were just saying about cutting the stifles adding expressive iteration having white removal that's what I was saying before about going bigger in the Delver mirror, uh, using their core, but having the supporting cast be hostile towards Delver, take their best cards, beat their other cards. Like that's. That that's just what I was saying earlier, and we've circled back to it. So that that was cool. I didn't know you were going to do that.
0: So Mishra's Bobble. I know that we talked about this a little bit earlier. But I'm glad to see that it's like picking up Brian, I think it was two weeks ago, said like, look at modern for what legacy will do. And it looks like Brian was just like two weeks ahead of us. Um, but you know, that's a repeating thing in Legacy where Legacy's just slow to adapt. And uh props to the zoomers for making it happen because I feel like they're the ones pushing a lot of these changes right now.
1: Yeah, Mishra's Bobble. I I I made a tidy little spec profit off that one. Uh, I bought a stack of those when they were like three bucks when Double Masters or whatever set it was in came out and got out at like 28 bucks a piece in the past three weeks. Like, gotta be looking for those things. Cards like that don't stay cheap. That's not a legacy commentary, but like uh, if you are playing magic and maintaining a collection, finding those trends uh, will help you play more magic. So,
2: Man, I'm so happy that I'm at the point in my life where I don't have to care about mtg finance anymore at a high level because um it's it's a real deep rabbit hole and it's not necessarily a happy rabbit hole like there you can you can spend just as much time as like a magic player spends like actually playing magic just following magic finance and trading and you know doing your puka trade or whatever the current hotness is to, wow, uh, puka trade. to
1: that's a throwback yeah
2: to, to grind that value and like it it got me it got me my dual lens it got me my legacy decks i i am glad that i did it but i'm never going back
0: so one of the things about bobble really quick is when i cut it from tes i sold mine for 24 there are currently 30
1: tickets online so they've gone right back up to the prime luris days i don't know if i sold my mtgo set when i uh when I got the card hoarder sponsorship, maybe I should check and see if I can unload those for a, a tidy little little bit of money. But I, to, to Phil's point of ignoring MTG Finance, like, I am not deep on MTG Finance, but one of the things that I do as a player is, like, when I see a card that is good and not getting attention, I will do small specs here and there. Like, I, I don't have a giant bankroll, I'm not a store, I'm not interested in, like, studying price trends but i tweeted about dress down like two weeks ago i bought 50 copies of dress down and i spent like 61 dollars with tax and shipping to get 50 copies it's a three to four dollar card right now it's it's jumped up already just in three weeks and uh, i i try to share those t- tips with my patreon first and then after a few days i share it with Twitter and I'm not an mtg finance person but you're leaving money on the table if you don't identify a good card and then make a move on it.
2: As a side note, it's also weird as a content creator how much power you potentially have to influence the, the card market. Oh yeah. Like have 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 you done it yet, Brian? Have you like gone to a card and been like, that's me. I did that?
1: I so the the fast rise of dress down, it's hard to know because it's an in print card that was until very recently a bulk rare like i did tweet about it it did get a lot of traction i know a lot of people went and bought a bunch uh, all at the same time but i don't think i quadrupled the price of an in-print bulk rare uh, just with my medium-sized twitter following like i don't think i did that uh i definitely remember Matt Elias wrote an article on Star City Games probably 10 plus years ago at this point where he mentioned the Abyss was primed for a comeback and I already had one for ADH and I bought a second copy I was like oh he mentioned the Abyss I gotta buy this card it went from like whatever an Abyss cost at the time like 90 bucks or whatever to like 150 by the end of the week just because he mentioned it and now we know about the power of reserve list cards and stuff this was before that era but I don't think that I'm responsible for like I don't know, some random card. Like, w- what card did you do?
2: Oh, just look at the price graph of Brightling at some point. Oh, that God. one was me. <laughs> <laughs> just It just fucking goes to the moon.
1: Anurag was on that as well. Uh, Anurag was yep. also hot on that card. He beat me with it in a Star City duel for duels, which to this day is one of my most embarrassing losses in the history of Magic the Gathering. Uh, he, this was right after the top ban, and... I had adopted Mentor and gotten off Counterbalance. He adopted Soothsaying to try to keep Counterbalance alive. And he did curve Soothsaying into Counterbalance in a Miracles mirror. And I was like, great, I'm going to lose to this shitter. And then like when he could have won with anything, he could have won with uh, Tundra Wolves. He played Brightling, and he's and then he was like, yeah, this Breitling's great, isn't it? I was like, no, you just have me locked up with Counterbalance. But yeah, there, there was a hot moment for brightling
2: Brightling was, like, one of the best cards in Death and Taxes for, like, literally two weeks. And then the metagame shifted it and it was, like, unplayable. But for those two weeks, I was, like, attacking under ensnaring bridges and, like, it was surviving, like, lightning bolts and it was just, like, fucking unkillable. Very nice. And then the format shifted into Baleful Strix and I was just like, oh, damn it.
0: So there's a card recently that I wish I could take credit for, but I doubt it's actually me wishclaw talisman has gone up to three dollars and you might be thinking like bryant no one plays the epic storm and that's true but the Luris lotus breach deck that i've been working on is beginning to see quite a bit of modern play and i wonder if that has any part to do with it but it could also just be like this card's a year old now so it's in standard still it could just be going up i don't know but i
1: wonder about that yeah it could just be throne of eldraine starting to rotate out of standard that's also the type of card that I imagine would be popular in EDH because you get to tutor, which is powerful, but you also get to play some politics of like someone else gets the claw now. And I, I think that could be a cool uh, sleep, like long term hold for EDH reasons. But but yeah, uh, it, it is cool seeing a card that you play. Get money. I
0: do have 36 of them in the Apex room shop right now. So uh, like Brian, I was like, I think that this is a card that will go up.
1: Yeah, honestly, if you're willing to hold for like two or three years, it's hard to miss. Like, if you just see like some rare, it's like, oh, some commander player will like this. Uh, I'll buy f- like fifty of them at bulk prices and sell them all for two bucks in two years. And
2: yeah, wh- why why do you think all the stores buy your your bulk rares? It's because like they can take the temporary hit, and then you know, if one percent of those cards end up going up in value significantly, they uh they make their money back, and then some.
1: Yeah, I've been I've been playing Magic, serious or like not seriously, but like collecting packs or buying packs with regularity since nineteen ninety seven, and I've done three major like combs through my collection, like pull up the price guide and Star City. Anything Star City is buying for a quarter or more gets pulled out of the the bulk, and I've purged my bulk for like three to five hundred dollars, probably four times over the those uh twenty five years, and it. it it's just like shit. It's the same pile of bulk. Like, I, pur- I pull $500 out of the pile, then wait five years, pull another $500 out of the pile. It's the same shit. It's just, that's magic.
0: I've looked at buying, because it's a tutor, like Brian said, tutors tend to be really popular in EDH. I've looked at buying Grim Tutor's Japanese foil since they were printed in, I think, M20. They're literally, I could buy a set of them shipped for $50, and I can't pull the trigger because Grim Tutor is such a bad card now. I don't even know if EDH players played it anymore, but that's one of those cards that, like, I want to own it, but I don't think I'd ever actually play it. But I
1: would just feel better if I owned it. I mean, you should probably fire it off. I I think you can afford $50. Yeah, how can you lose
2: out on that purchase? Like, that, that will certainly pay for itself if you sit on it for a few years. Yeah, you'll be all right.
0: I don't sell cards, though. Like, Brian talks about, like, here's his dress downs going up to $4. The first thought in my head was, like, what the fuck? How am I going to get rid of 40 dress downs now? Or 60 dress downs? Like, I just don't have that outlet. So, like, do I just, like, post them to TCG Player myself and take a hit on each one and pray that people buy them from me?
1: Do you have Facebook? There's, like, the, the like, sick deals group. My stack of baubles was gone in, like, four hours. I yeah, had you're something cooler
0: than I am, Brian.
1: I mean, it doesn't matter on Facebook. You don't have followers. Uh, like, it's it's just a group that pops up. Uh, like, I do make a lot of sales on Twitter, but the hashtag MTG buy sell, people click on that. They're scrolling it all the time. Like, randos hit me up for my judge foils and stuff. It, it can happen. Uh, I think that it might be slow to unload 40 copies of Dress Down, but I. If it hits like five dollars, and you can walk up to a dealer booth and just get two fifty a piece, you're still in the black by a lot.
0: I don't know if you'll remember this, but there was a time period that uh, Just Guy Ascendancy hit like eight dollars because like it top aided some modern uh, SCG top eight whatever. So like Just Guy Ascendancies were like eight bucks at the time. I had seventy five of them. I posted them to a bunch of groups. Six dollars, twenty four dollars, whatever shipped sold like four play sets i still have like 50 something of them that i just like could not move in that time period i even like posted them to four dollars each at one point and they just would not budge i'm really bad at selling that stuff
2: apparently all right so something our previous point kind of hit on was like the the power of a single voice in the community and like sometimes how the actions of of one person's have ripples on finance well the same is true of deck building too uh, we already kind of brought up uh, Jeskai Ragstill as like a deck that we thought maybe had some, maybe deck building, maybe not flaws, but maybe the the deck wasn't quite optimized. But people were you know picking up the the deck list that got published and just playing them as is rather than sort of iterating on their own. And so like one person's deck list got passed around a an absolute ton, and sometimes that has weird implications for Legacy. So like. I know, Brian, you you recently had a lot of run-ins with Reanimator, right? Do you want to talk about that?
0: Yeah, I think Brian touched upon it last week, too. But Eric Landon has started playing Magic Online again. And, you know, props to Eric. But I faced Reanimator at least once a league now. Maybe it's just the time of day that I play Magic Online. But I see it everywhere. And that was a deck for the last year that Eric was off doing other stuff that I just never had to face. Like, I'd face it, like, once a month is literally anytime I play legacy now, so the impact of content creators does just like people seeing that somebody else cares about their deck or their like side deck will get them to go back to playing um whatever they were on so I know that when top tom hep was doing the uh the the trophy run whatever tom hep got up to like sixty eight trophies or something ridiculous, tons of people were on five color depths who's playing five color depths right now without a champion like I feel like having a voice for your deck goes very far in Legacy.
1: Yeah, there's a couple data points for that where there's also some competing metagame stuff. Like, it's true, Tom is not grinding Moto anymore, but at the same time, we already talked about how Black Green Depths is, like, the nut low with everyone's ability to gain life or have reach or remove a 20 Like, that... Merit Lage has never been worse, and that could be a factor as well. Likewise, Reanimator. Eric coming back, telling people it can be done, certainly empowered them, but Bant being on the decline means that Endurance is on the decline. And I played a Reanimator League on my channel recently where Unmask Reanimate is still just a thing. Like, they have more chances, like, now there's two or three Endurance on top of the four to six forces that you have to worry about turn one but did they keep a hand with like force blue card endurance green card like unmask still collapses force endurance with either a blue or green card or like a a hand needs to be pretty stacked and chancellor of the annex still just beats all that shit like you need two things and you've always needed two things and it's just reanimator is still good like tarmon grizzlebrand still is going to win the game and that's just been true for a while but eric being out there like hey look do it is worth a lot and then one more story for this when i my first episode of the deep analysis webcast that i did with uh, alex mckinley and uh, dan damato we were talking about epic storm and ad nauseum tendrils and dan was like If you're scared of playing ad nauseum tendrils because of veil of summer and force of negation, you don't really need to be. And he laid out some points, and then there was a resurgence over the next two weeks of a bunch of like old storm cabal people and just random people who had been off storm for a while. Were like, yeah, you know what? He's right. And then they, like, people were like tagging me in ad nauseum tendrils five for the next two weeks. And sometimes you just need to hear it said to be brave enough to try it on your own.
2: And I don't know how many times. I have played some meme deck list for the channel and then a few days later after that video goes live I, I will just run into that deck everywhere like it happened a couple times this year with like Dead Guy Ale for example where like I wouldn't have played against it for months and then like I'll, I'll put on a good show with it and then all of a sudden like I will run into Dead Guy Ale three times in a week while people are are trying it out or a lot of times I'll run into things that like uh, Joe Dyer has published in like the spice corner of his most recent legacy column or, or stuff like that. So one, one person, if they have a, a loud voice can have huge ripples on a community.
0: I actually missed a magic update. Uh, so I faced someone on Brian Koval's latest shark still list over the last <laughs> two weeks that had both Norod and mind break trap in it, because that's what Brian recommended in his video.
1: Okay, so this is a preposterous story with multiple twists and turns that you're all going to have to listen to because I'm going to tell it. So somebody submitted a Sharksteel deck for me to play on the channel. I opened up their email. I went to record it. I recorded their league. The list was kind of sus, and I said as much in the deck tech in the video. I was like, "Uh, a lot of things I don't like about this list. I changed some things. I left some things the same, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to try it as is, and I the league went live and the person responded and was like, hey, that's totally not my list. And I checked and it was true. Somehow the list that they sent me was completely different and significantly better than the one that I actually played, and I have no idea to this day where the one I actually recorded came from. I don't know if I just had a Shark Still depth randomly saved in my downloads and it just my brain loaded that one and went with it. But so I Uploaded this video of this like kind of heinous build of shark still that had both Mindbreak Trap and Null Rod in it inexplicably. And then Bryant messaged me and he's like, I just played against one of your disciples the the, some maniac who had Null Rod and Mindbreak Trap in the deck. And then I had a coaching client the next day who was like, "Okay, uh, I don't I'm not sure I played this match very well. Like I want to talk about it. It was actually against Bryant and it was that guy. (laughs) So I got to see the other side and. He was right. He did actually punt it. Uh Bryant actually punted the final turn, and then my guy punted right back. It was it was rough to watch.
2: Look, sometimes you just gotta kick the ball around. Give both players a fair chance.
1: Yeah, like uh I- I'm trying to imagine like like a soccer game where like the goalie just punts the shit out of it and someone just heads it right back from from midfield. Like that that's what it looked like. I'll be honest, I play
0: a lot of magic. I don't remember what punt I made, but I believe that it happened.
1: So I, I can, I can lay it out. So uh, we had Teferi and play, and you led on Orym's Chant, which we countered, and then you followed with Veil vale of Summer, which my guy just mindbreak trapped the Veil vale of Summer instead of waiting for the payoff spell, like not realizing that mindbreak trap gets around Veil. Vale. If you lead on Veil, vale, we have to counter that. And then you can Oroms chant to get around Mind Break trap. Like you had us checkmated, but you did it backwards. And like, uh, I like w- in the coaching session, I was like, "Oh, if he's chanting first, then he doesn't have Veil, too." And then you were, I was like, "Oh, he did have Veil. Good thing it doesn't matter." But it was, it was a pre-recorded video, and I just watched the train wreck and slow mo of my guy. Just like oh, I gotta I counter that. To know
0: about Mind Break though, like because like it caught me completely off guard
1: it was in the graveyard. We had mindbreak you once already that game. So I don't know if you're going to play around a second copy or if you pulled the list, you would know that there was snapcaster mage. Uh, like we had six mana. That's that was the play. Uh, we had snapcaster for the mindbreak in the graveyard. But I guess I like remember if this
0: part now. Yeah. yeah
1: so uh, I don't know how much you're supposed to know or if you pulled up my list from the day, right? While you're doing it live. I, I, I don't know. But I, I do think that Knowing that Mindbreak Trap is a possibility, and with Teferi in play, so you can't, like, protect your chant with Veil anyway, I think you lead on Veil there.
0: That's fair. Uh, I'll be honest, I didn't assume that it was your list because I gave you more respect than playing Mindbreak Trap in your Shark still
1: (laughs) deck. That's gonna be just, like, like, when I talked about that story earlier of, like, Ryan Sachs going into a fugue state and waking up in the middle of a draft, it is lgs i woke up in a fugue state in the middle of that league just like what the hell is going on where did i find this list i don't understand <laughs> and i i i don't defend that list at this point <laughs> i don't know is it time to talk about
2: is it delver
0: metagame health
2: how, we, how how we feeling about the the format i'll 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 start my my thoughts are simple I'm I'm still having a lot of fun playing Legacy. I'm playing good decks. I'm I'm playing bad decks. I usually feel like I am I am playing reasonable games of Magic. I don't feel like I did in previous points in the past two years, where I just like feel absolutely crushed by like Dreadhorde Arcanist or uh, the the companions, especially Luris. I I think things are okay right now. Although I understand why people are
1: frustrated i'm gonna echo phil's thoughts to start i think that any given five matches in a league are going to be pretty fun i think the local meta game where people are going to play what they have or play what they like rather than just grinding play points you're going to have a lot of fun my local events have had as many jeweled lotus in the field as delver of secrets like that was a true statistic from one of my recent underground sea tournaments like people are going to play what they like in real life and the leagues are a little goofy it's when you get into these big important events where everyone is trying to win and no one's trying to have fun other than through winning that you start to see the the patterns and potential problems emerge
0: i would agree with that 100 percent. i've been playing a lot of locals and they're a blast uh, but when you get to the showcases and the high level challenges it's pretty miserable um that said i don't know if wizards cares that much
1: and i think that do they care is a loaded question because the answer to that is maybe a little like uh to i think i've made points to this tune before on the cast and i'm gonna make it again where the people who are just like head down in their spreadsheets like delver's win rate is above 54% wizards you have to take action those people have completely lost touch with reality that wizards of the coast is selling products to commander players they're not even sure if they care about pro play anymore to sell standard and limited and once you get past standard they have historic to market after once you get off arena modern is the big seller and Now we're in Legacy, which is already just like permanently and irrevocably corrupted by the reserve list. Unless the community at large just widely embraces proxy tournaments, like unlimited proxy tournament just to get people playing, Legacy has hit a ceiling of just affordability. And without going too deep on a side tangent, Bayou costs more right now than Mox Sapphire did when I started playing Eternal Magic in 2008, and in 2008... Proxy vintage was already the norm, so if non-blue duels cost more than mock sapphire, it's time to proxy legacy. Just universally across the board, allow proxy tournaments. At, like make it special at a GP, make it special at Eternal Weekend, run the sanction stuff. But your local store should be running proxy legacy at this point, and I'm just on that, and that's how, where I am with that.
0: So our locals are full proxy. And I don't know how people feel about this, but our 2Ks or 10 proxy, that said, they can't be just writing on the back of a card. They have to be like a high quality print in a sleeve. Uh, It has to at least look like a magic card. But because of that push, they've gotten 55 people for their legacy 2Ks, which is pretty good, at least for upstate New York.
1: Yeah, we had a local store, um, one that Used to be a big deal in the Pittsburgh area, but has slowly just spiraled into toxicity and degeneracy and nobody really plays there anymore. But that store ran vintage. They decided uh, we're going to run vintage every month. They did a Saturday. Every Saturday was a different format Then they gave us one Sunday for vintage every month. And the owner was like, we're doing it sanctioned. There will not be proxies. I think... His idea was if one person buys one Black Lotus from me so they can play in this tournament, that's worth more than running this tournament any number of times with proxies. Uh, Like, that's just his, like, you know, rise and grind mentality. And the Vintage started out with, like, 14 people. At one point, it pushed up to 16. And then it trickled down to, like, 12. Then 9. Then we were firing many tournaments with 6 and 4 people. And then we just stopped showing up well we had a robust legacy community any of whom would have shown up to 10 proxy vintage and just had a blast so uh let the and number one of the number one comments i get on my youtube content is wow you make legacy look so much fun i wish i could afford dual lands it breaks my heart it
2: it is really sad how frequently i get those comments it is it is almost every day where someone, like, sees a cool new deck for the first time and they're like, man, I wish I could just, like, play this tomorrow for FNM, but it would cost me $1,000 to build this deck, even though I have most of the pieces already.
1: Yeah, and and you can look like, look at even, like, a goofy deck, like Dead Guy L, and it's like, oh, I, I could get into this deck for, like, 300 bucks till you get to the Scrublands. <laughs> and, like, okay, this deck's gone. And uh, that that's always been true. Like, it's always been, like, oh, Legacy's pretty affordable till you hit the mana base, and... Now with like Mox Diamond LED, that's not even necessarily true anymore, unless you want to count those as mana bases. But uh, all that aside, Proxy Legacy should be the norm.
0: Brian, earlier we paused on a point that you wanted to make about days. Do you remember what it was?
1: Yeah. So I have, even, even before Ragavan's printing, I have long held the belief that banning days would be a reasonable thing to do, and... Using Popper as a, a historical context, and people have argued with that before that they're like Delver didn't go anywhere when Popper was banned or when Days was banned out of Popper. That's just wrong. But I mean, those Delver-based control decks were still good, but the counterplay was better. That's the difference. Like the deck can still be Tier One, Tier One Five. It just can't be S Tier. And cards like Days, uh, that are kind of out of bounds in a the popper format like that's that's a different format obviously and i've been like cool with the idea of days leaving legacy i'm not pushing for it but i wouldn't cry about it and like two or three weeks ago i was sort of actively tweeting like maybe it's time for days to go but i will say having played more against ragavan that i think the play pattern with delver where it's like you have to make the decision do I want to lose some life points to get ahead of days versus just jam my spell, play on curve, and like hope they don't have it? I think that is an interesting play pattern. When it's a card like Ragavan that can snowball advantage immediately if it connects once as a one drop, like even Dreadhorde Arcanist, you had a turn to get around days playing against Dreadhorde Arcanist. And, uh, I mean, obviously that card's fucked up, and that card is also a lot better. When Dragonheart Arcanus turns sideways, it's more powerful than when Ragavan connects, just on average, because you're casting your own spell, you're guaranteed to get it, etc. They're different cards, but the pressure to answer Ragavan now as a one-drop, and you don't really get the luxury of playing around days, unless you're willing to roll the dice that they don't take your Ponder or your Carpet of Flowers, for fuck's sake. That sucked. Like, that... That is a different tension. I think it is reasonable to expect people to play removal spells in their deck. I think it is unreasonable that a one drop is that good and it gets to be protected by days. And I think either one of them leaving the format would improve things. The So I think that if Ragavan were to get banned, Delver would fall back into just tier one instead of S. And that's fine though we're just waiting for the next one drop we have to ban at that point like look at death right jam and look at uh and not even one drop look at ren and six look at dread horde arcanus like we know the delver shell is on the edge of broken at all times and knocking days would hit the delver shell rather than the present problem but at the same time uh like for format identity and interesting play patterns is it better to continue hitting like every one and two drop that's out of balance or should we just hit days and and change it and and that that question i'm not super sold on either way at this point
0: i think the ragavan part you mentioned where like the tension with days like do you just kill this it's very comparable to how it felt in the death rate format against the grixis del Shell. it was obviously very different when they were playing like the four color builds but Grixis Delver, where you were just so far behind if you didn't kill Deathrite on turn one, feels very similar to Ragavan.
1: And they do a similar thing in that if they use daze to protect their creature, their creature will generate mana to recoup the loss of daze. Like, Deathrite Shaman and Ragavan both generate mana, which is the cost of dazing. So, like, even if you do just, like, jam your your plow on their delver and they daze it they're back a land which will make it harder to develop harder to fight the next removal spell and the only thing at stake is your life total but uh, death right recouping the mana ragavan recouping the mana and possibly generating card advantage like th- those are just very different equations than just your life total versus uh, development
0: So we mentioned it earlier on, but the Delvers have actually been falling out of Blue Red Delver. I think if you hit Ragavan, the Delvers just slot back into those slots. And even before Modern Horizons 2, Delver was the best deck in the format. So now they just got the upgrade with uh, Dragon Rage Channeler. I wouldn't expect things to change. They even got a slight boost, which is maybe okay if they only hit Ragavan, but still fairly boring, at least in my opinion.
1: So you can... So thinking Delver is boring and thinking tel- Delver is a toxic chokehold on Legacy are two completely different things. Different yes. things. And uh, Delver will always be boring and Delver will always be good. And uh, especially if you're locked in the position of I'm never going to join him. I'm only going to try to beat them. And uh, OK, they had the Delver. They dazed me. Uh, yeah, good game, whatever. Uh, sure, you had the second force. Good for you. Like those games are going to happen. But, I think that just the the raw delver shell, where the only thing at stake is your life total and they're not easily generating card advantage while reducing your life total i I think that that Delver deck is great for legacy, and i'm but again, we're just signing up to just have to ban every playable one and two drop out of Delver for the rest of time if we don't actually attack the shell
0: well this is just a hypothetical. I'm not advocating for this. I'm just asking a question. What do you think would happen if they hit both Days and Ragavan?
1: I don't know. Uh, I'd have to see it. Like I've I've put zero
2: thought into that theory crafted world. I don't think those sorts of conversations are useful, really. Like, I I will I will expend all my my brain power and put my effort and energy into those things when they happen. But like, when you just get like the Reddit posts that are like, "Hey, how do I change my deck if this thing gets banned?" Like. Why aren't you working on what we have in front of us? Like, I, I, I want to focus on the things that I'm going to be playing against and not expend my brain power on, like, the, the, the what ifs.
0: So, I agree with that to a certain extent. The problem is that whenever you talk about ban discussions, people go, Well, if you ban days, combo is going to wreck the format. That's, like, one of the number one responses. So, having people discuss hypothetical possibilities while not being super useful if you're at least talking about it maybe some of those opinions change because i don't think combo would actually take over the format and i bet that delver would still be a tier one deck Uh, obviously there's no way of knowing but i i still think delver would just sit on the top of tier one it would just be a lot more balanced
1: yeah i mean i agree with that for sure the the more so than like fleshing out your ban list and like next order consequences and stuff of your ban discussion. I think more the saving the energy is on like who are you and why do you need to have a fully fleshed out ban theory? Are you wizards of the coast? Like, are you gonna do anything to actually get that done? Like it, like you and like Jarvis and like Bob Wong or whatever can like scream at each other in Discord about days versus Ragavan versus whatever versus combo forever but none of that is actually a a decision being made and i think that's i i'm mostly on phil's side of uh you know the the (laughs) grant me the the serenity to accept the things i cannot change and uh, all of that like that's me and so what now what is one of my like mottos in life like okay that they banned delver brainstorm fetchlands and wasteland now what does legacy look like let's figure it out like, I will continue to play Legacy no matter what they do. I'll continue to play Legacy if they do nothing. Like, Again, I'll figure it out when I'm there. Uh, but I, I, I never want to go too deep on a band discussion because I think that's wasted energy.
2: And on that note, do we have any final thoughts here? Because we are kind of running up our uh, the tail end of our podcast here. So does anyone have anything they want to close on?
1: I think we're good. This was a, a much more on-the-rails episode than than the previous one nobody's uh, particularly heinous body parts were were mentioned
0: you know i had a couple of people message me after the last one saying how much they loved how far off the rails we went but a few of the reddit comments said they they didn't like how off the rails we went so i think that we over the last few weeks we gave you a good balance i guess is what we're trying to say
1: yeah and all right <laughs> i mean sorry phil i see you trying to wrap this up i, I know you're working this morning.
2: fucking episode one way or another okay God, i'll shut I'm... up
1: all right phil <laughs> bring us out
2: All right. Thank you all for joining us. We'll be back again in two weeks. See you later. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed.